Hello and welcome to the Training for Influence podcast, Series 4. We believe that expert, tailored, engaging and values-led training has the ability to transform lives. And we think it's an absolute privilege to facilitate the learning of frontline professionals. So this series is dedicated to sharing stories and tips from experienced and inspirational trainers. Its aim is to encourage and support people who are facilitating training to deliver their very best every time. So welcome to the podcast today, Nigel. It's fantastic to have you here. Please could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do and the training that you deliver? Sure. My name is Nigel Beckles. I am a certified relationship coach, a author. I'm also a workshop facilitator and I deliver training around domestic abuse. Fantastic. So that's a really difficult subject to deliver training in. Can you tell us a little bit about why you deliver training in that subject? Well, I grew up as a child. I uh, witnessed domestic violence and domestic abuse. And as an adult, that had certain impacts on my life. So I had some stuff I had to unpack and um, always just been drawn to support people and help people. Yeah, I can completely appreciate that. And it hugely resonates with my values because actually what you'll be sharing there is your story, your understanding and empathy within that context of facilitating their learning. Indeed, indeed. And it is a very difficult and often emotive subject. So delivering that type of training can be challenging, but it's also very rewarding because I'm all about awareness. That's my mission. In terms of the training I've provided, I belong to an organization called Survivor Provider Services, which was set up prior to COVID. We were fortunate enough to actually obtain funding from Virgin Money. But again, there are about five of us. And again, as you mentioned, we're either all survivors of domestic abuse or we've worked in that field. So we are very focused and driven in that in that way. But the training we deliver is to corporations and also local authorities, corporations and companies in terms of, for example, you may have a colleague who's going through domestic abuse, but they don't want to talk about it. But there are certain signs you may pick up on if you know what to look for to think, oh, well, perhaps it's not always a question of someone comes to work with bruises, for example. You might have a colleague, for example, who is usually quite bubbly. And over a couple of weeks or a couple of months, they start to become withdrawn and they're not as talkative. So that has been prior to COVID. That's what I was involved with. Obviously, now with the advent of COVID, we are now looking at obviously delivering training online. That's the way of the world at the moment. (laughs) I think as well, Nigel, very honestly, if I think back to our live online journey, we started last March when COVID hit. And not one of our customers wants to go back to face to face. So we've got lots of local authority, police and charities and such like. Some of them are going to do hybrid because what they've worked out and we've done for the ones that we've got kind of long term contracts with, we've done like a partnership approach with because what they've worked out is if they keep some of it live online, then actually reduces the travel costs for their team Mm. and they can book an extra few subjects. Mm. So we do some specialist subjects like working with people who perpetrate domestic abuse and things like that. And they're the courses which, although they shouldn't be, are courses which they only select if they've got 
got the money to because they're not mandated. And what's happened, because they can reroute some of the travel money, is that they're choosing to do some additional learning. So going back to what you had said about you're going to be moving to live online, I don't think we'll ever go back from it. I think moving forward, at the moment, people are a bit zoomed out and a bit sick of it. But I think <laughs> moving forward in like six to 12 months time, I can see people cheering when their manager says, you've got a training day tomorrow, you can stay in your pyjamas. <laughs> People thrilled them, won't they? Rather than travelling across London to get to a venue or, or whatever. Well, as the Americans say, it's a no-brainer when you think about it. Because, I mean, even if you look at it from an employer's point of view, well, they're saving on overhead, saving on costs, saving on heat in an office, for example. Yeah. For the employee, well, they haven't got the travel cost of getting to work. As you say, you can roll up in your pyjamas, jump in front of your PC. <laughs> trousers on <laughs> yeah so it's win-win you know all the way around but saying that I firmly believe that the world generally was moving to an online existence anyway I just think that COVID has just accelerated I mean a lot of for example a lot of retail shops on the high street etc they were kind of struggling anyway yeah before COVID we're all about convenience now aren't we yes. so that's what drives what we're doing Mm. And I think for me, so I get on my pedestal a little bit and rant about e-learning and I have a real issue. So I worked within the charity sector, working as a CEO for a charity preventing sexual abuse. And I went into working within the sector and I was around at a time where there were some huge, huge austerity measures and cuts about 15-ish years ago. And what we saw at that point was good services being pitched against each other. And when those good services were pitched against each other, they all had to come in at the lowest price they possibly could, which impacted on quality of staff, team members, resources, effectively impacted on the service that the person with vulnerabilities they received. And one of the biggest cuts that I saw was cuts to training. And it was everybody converted to e-learning, which at that point was seen like this magic solution because it cost a fifth of the price and people could do it at home. They could do it in their own convenience and suddenly all of the services could save money. So I've had a real issue because I've seen working in the sector since then, I've seen how e-learning doesn't do the same as face-to-face -face training at all. It doesn't challenge people's perspectives, doesn't widen their frame of reference. It doesn't pick apart stereotypes. It doesn't clarify unconscious bias. It doesn't allow you to have those safeguarding conversations at all. You just stay kind of, yeah. you're given information. And actually, very honestly, whether you retain that information before you consider the interpretation of it, whether you actually even retain it is <laughs> anybody's of guess. course yeah so I have a real issue with static e-learning and particularly frontline organizations that have replaced all of their induction training with e-learning I think that it's a it's a road to nowhere with regards to actually values-based services and values-based decisions so I was really against the live online stuff and I've kind of had to eat my words because they're so different. <laughs> you know, They're like completely on different pages to each other, aren't they? Well, and to I an extent, I would, you know, for me, it's about the content and it's about the delivery, but it's also about the personal at the learning in that they're receiving in because also it's going to depend on you know have they got unconscious biases they're not aware of for example I mean as you know or you probably know the famous or infamous Meghan Markle and Harry's happened 
And there's a lot of talk around unconscious bias in terms of racism. You know, yeah. is someone aware their races? Is someone aware they hold racist attitudes? So it's a lot to unpack. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, sometimes you, obviously you, as trainers, as people who deliver training, obviously we want that training to be the best. And obviously we want to make a difference because that's why, <laughs> that's why we do what we do. But at the same time, we... I think have to be realistic in terms of, well, someone is only to an extent going to absorb or learn what they want to learn. There's an old saying, I'm one for old sayings, by the way. (laughs) This is the first one that I've heard. (laughs) A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Ah, yeah. You know, so a person's got to kind of be open to that learning because otherwise, you know, you could spend hours trying to deliver training Especially if you're talking about, you know, sexual abuse. I mean, you know, sexual abuse, domestic abuse. You know, I mean, one of the refrains of many people, if they're talking to somebody about being in a domestic abuse situation, they'll say, oh, well, why didn't you leave? Well, that why immediately is a victim-blaming statement. Uh, Do you know, Nigel, at the weekend when we did our Ask Me Anything, we got people to submit questions. And that was one of the questions that was submitted. Why don't people just leave? Mm. And it was so interesting because all three of the panellists and somebody who was watching live all at the same time kind of commented. One with somebody saying that's victim blaming. Mm. Somebody else was saying, why don't you ask why are you causing harm? Mm. Somebody else had said, actually, we've reframed it to why didn't you escape? Because it's far bigger than leaving. And immediately everybody pushed back on that exact kind of phrase, which I just think Mm. is it shows that actually awareness is raising around those stereotypes and that, that understanding. Well, yes, but then you have to kind of look at it. See, for me, I'm very much one for context. So if someone's going to say, well, why didn't you leave? It's like, well, are they saying that because they're ignorant? You know, not everybody understands issues around domestic abuse. It may be a genuine question with zero malice. However, for the person who's receiving that comment, well, why didn't you leave? Well, that sounds like an accusation. Yeah. You know, even in, I mean, I've got a qualification in radio presentation and production. And one of the modules was journalism. And you are taught, there are certain questions you ask, but why is often received as a loaded question. Or why can be perceived as an accusation. Well, why didn't you do this? Or why did you do that? Yeah. And actually from a professional in particular, it can immediately close down any conversations. And there's so much evidence that shows that the first person you talk to and how they respond make all of the difference right across the board with regards to disclosing any type of abuse. So there's a part of me that also thinks that professionals have a responsibility to actually Mm. understand the impact of their words. And it's why within the training methodology... The methodology goes expert, tailored, engaging, values-led. And within the values-led bit, there's four key elements. But one of the key elements is that actually every training session that we develop or deliver is delivered from a trauma-informed perspective. For exactly that reason, you don't have to know the detail of everybody's background that you're working with as a professional. But actually, you need to deliver all of your services with that trauma-informed perspective so it doesn't become a barrier to them reporting Mm -hmm. to you. So yeah, I completely concur with you. It just, it can just shut people down. And in some ways, I appreciate what you're saying about kind of the ignorance, do they just not know? 
within training it's really important to be that safe space so people can ask those questions of course however within their role they absolutely have a professional responsibility to ensure that they do have the right language particularly if they're working with people who are particularly vulnerable have complex needs or within services that are the services that are on the front line Mm. and also if they're traumatized because being traumatized for someone who's experienced abuse is, as you know, is a very common occurrence. And sometimes a person doesn't even realize they've been traumatized. That's certainly been um, my experience. And I do coaching as well. But in coaching, you see, sometimes I get approached by people who are currently experiencing domestic abuse. Right. And I always refer them on to someone who's qualified to deal with those issues. Because, yes, I'm a certified relationship coach, but coaching is about setting goals for the future. Therapy and counselling is about unpacking issues from the past. Yeah. So you can then move forward. So I'm very clear in terms of the distinctions in terms of delivering, well, support. Because training is one thing. Delivering support, especially in terms of someone who's been through or going through domestic abuse, is another ballgame. And going back to delivering information, not delivering training, but sometimes people are not ready to hear what could be happening. Yeah. You know, because as we know about cognitive dissonance, people are in denial. Some people are even too traumatized to actually think clearly. Yeah. So it's a lot. It's a lot of responsibility in terms of delivering that training effectively. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think it's difficult because there's two things there. One of the things is you've got to meet people where they're at, haven't you? Mm. And judge as a good facilitator, like we always say, we don't train, we facilitate learning. Yes, yes. A good facilitator meets somebody where they're at and then they use both, well, lots of different learn styles, but both emotional and academic kind of intelligence to be able to bring that subject alive in a way that the person can connect to to Mm. kind of move them forward but you're right some people will move leaps and bounds and they're Mm. ready for that movement other people might literally move a metaphorical millimeter because Mm. actually for whatever reason there's some real barriers to them kind of engaging within that learning and quite often that is to do with their frame of reference But sometimes it's also trauma that they've experienced and that they're blocking out or that the recognition is actually something that will have a negative impact on them as well. Mm. And it is, you're right, it's a huge responsibility for facilitators, particularly if you're delivering such an emotive subject. And that's one of the challenges actually with Live Online. We're delivering our train the trainer course part of it to a local authority next week. And there's a variety of trainers, there's about 15 of them, and they all deliver emotive subjects from domestic abuse, safeguarding, suicide prevention, things like that. And actually, the local authority have really struggled to persuade their internal trainers to deliver these services, these training courses, sorry, live online. And not because of the technology, because actually most of them have got used to the technology during COVID because that's where they're doing most of their meetings. But actually because they're really worried about how can you emotionally support somebody live online? How can you really be aware of how somebody's feeling, how somebody's reacting and be able to really safeguard them? And so the session that we're doing next week is a part of our our live online module from our Train the Trainer course that really specifically talks to how to deliver an emotive subject live online, how to look after somebody's well-being and what kind of techniques there are to really ensure that somebody's safeguarding within the training. 
Mm. So it's not when you're converting a course from face to face to live online, it's not as simple as, okay, now I need to consider these learning styles. I need to adapt this activity to meet these needs. I need to make sure that I know my technology and things like that. It's not as simple as that when it's an emotive subject, Mm. because actually we've got a far higher responsibility, I believe, to all of the delegates because they've all got their own current lives. They've also got their own history. And they're trying to undertake a really complex role. So it's like we've got added responsibility, but one that should be, I guess, recognised as a privilege. And that's how I feel when we go out and deliver these types of sessions. I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Training for Influence. We're on a mission to help frontline services easily access quality values-led training. That's why we developed our Train the Trainer program based on the book, Transform Your Training. We run four intakes a year and each applicant is selected based on their current experience level and values. Just like our methodology, we've designed the learning to be personalized, interactive, inspirational, and suitable for both new and experienced trainers to help them develop and deliver sessions either face-to-face or live online. If you're interested in applying for our 12-week blended learning qualification, then please do get in touch. All of our contact details can be found in the show notes. It's the potential to change someone's life for the better, hopefully. But I'm glad you mentioned learning styles because, again, that is something that I... I pay attention to because everyone has different learning styles. Some people prefer reading the information. Some people prefer pictures. Some people prefer graphics. So when I'm putting together like a workshop in terms of content, I'm also always mindful of, okay, let me try and get a good blend, you know, a good blend of both. And obviously looking at what your outcomes are, because really and truly before I even start putting together a workshop or the material, my first exercise for myself is, well, what are the outcomes am I looking for in terms of when the people attend, what are they going to take away? Yeah. What outcomes are they coming to achieve? Achieve, yes. But then in the publicity material, because I've kind of got like a standard, because obviously marketing is different to training. So you've got to look at your marketing in terms of that. <laughs> so my, my thing would be, for example, I've done workshop before and I'll say, uh, right, at the end of this workshop, on the flyer, I'll say, at the end of this workshop, you will know. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. So when someone reads it and I say, oh, yeah, I'd be interested in learning about these different things. Well, fine. They're inclined to obviously sign up. But then at the other end of that, as you know, you've got to have your feedback sheet and your evaluation to know, well, okay, well, what has been delivered? Was it effective? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of thought has to go, well, let me correct that. A lot of thought should go into it. Yes, Um, because we both know that it doesn't always, but that's exactly why we're having the conversation. That's exactly why Mm. we're doing what we're doing, because actually, I believe that if we can just continue the movement with regards to the fact that training is often undervalued Mm. and it can achieve so much more. And you said it earlier, you know, without knowing it, that's our mantra. Training has the power to change lives. That's what we talk about time and time again. And I get frustrated by the fact that sometimes it can just be a tick box exercise Mm. for some organizations. And so I try and take that tick box exercise and use it to change lives within within that context, you know, because it doesn't matter why they're there. They're there. 
Yeah. And actually that's time in that person's life, whatever reason they're there for, that's minutes or hours of that person's life they are never going to get back. Precisely. So it's a real privilege to have that opportunity to help them understand a subject better mm. or to build the skills and techniques that they need to be able to deliver a more effective service. Mm. Oh, yes, most definitely. It is kind of frustrating. I understand what you mean when you say, well, organisations have been cutting back on their training budget. But often that's the first thing that goes. When, when the pressure's on financially, often yeah. the, the training budget is the first thing that gets sliced. So short-sighted, so short-sighted. Because mm. people are your biggest resource. Precisely. Well, that is the challenge, isn't it? That's kind of the movement that we're trying to do at the moment with regards to training for influence is actually connect people who are values-based expert trainers. Because if we can connect people, if we can have a community where actually they're the minimum standards. So you know that if you're choosing from that pool of people with that collective accreditation, what you know is that you're always getting an operational expert who's got experience professionally or personally of that subject. Yeah. You're always getting somebody who has been taught expert facilitation skills. They've always gone through the process, just like you explained there, of tailoring the session to actually what's needed. What are the outcomes that we're trying to achieve? Whether that's individual outcomes, organisation outcomes or sector outcomes. And then going on to like our fourth step, exactly what you said again engaging and interactive all those different learning styles and using all of those accelerated learning techniques mm. and then our final step which we call the golden thread is values led so we very much believe that actually if within every training session and relevant of what the subject is you mm. value your delegates you role model value in your service users and you take your values to that session and that's where the interconnectivity with trauma-informed and unconscious bias and such like come into it then actually that session is going to be the very best it can possibly be so our mission is to help people kind of recognize that have that standard accreditation so that actually other organizations individual services they don't have to do that google guess do you know of is this going to be a waste of time or is this going to be really powerful and, and change my life do you know because it's it's worth too much for that yes well i think one of the challenges you mentioned corporate in terms of is the training going to change things on a corporate level or change the culture of the organization yeah. for example i've worked within local authorities for 20 years plus and oh, so you'll know all about culture then oh i know all about culture i've also been a unison rep um, oh wow okay you know, talking to an expert here then yeah, representing people up to employment tribunal level and obviously representing them in disciplinaries, etc. When the McPherson report came out after the inquiry into um, the murder of Stephen Lawrence, I spent my own money and got a copy of the McPherson report, which I still have. And he makes some reference again to the culture in organisations, which is a sense where the term institutional racism comes from. Yeah. systematic racism but yeah the culture of organization that's another important point because what i observed in my time is that they would have very fancy mission statements and policies but what was written on paper didn't translate into real life absolutely yeah so it is interesting when you look at it because obviously you, you can read your feedback form from each delegate at the end of the workshop and you know so obviously you can gauge for each person you know say, okay well you know what did they like what they didn't like what they felt they got out of it etc when you're dealing with the actual organization 
how do you, not say how do you measure that, because one would assume management will ask their delegates, well, what did you think, et cetera, et cetera, and then feed that back to you. But that obviously doesn't always happen. Yeah. I think as well, one of the ways that we do it, certainly at Tay Training, is because we deliver so many different courses to the same organisation, okay. we do it over longitudinal times. Mm. So we might deliver the leadership and management course to the SMT, for instance. We might deliver safeguard for trustees to the trustee board. We might deliver managing challenge and behaviour to the people working on the ground with the young people, for instance. And in all of those, whatever course it is, whatever subject it is, we use the same methodology. And mm. part of the methodology is the values led in every single course that we talk about. We start with the organization's vision and mission, and then we connect the subject to their vision and mission. We then, our introductions, always are asking people about their why. So why do you do this job? You could be stacking shelves at Tesco's, mm. but you've chosen to do this. Why? And that's to try and pull people away from that noise of, this is happening outside of work. These are the austerity measures. This is this. It connects them back to, oh, the reason I'm doing this job is because I'm passionate or I care or because of my history. It reconnects them. Mm. And then as we're going through the session, we lace everything to values-based decision-making because as a training company and as a methodology, interestingly, our aim is to obviously deliver quality training, but our mission is to interrupt the generational cycle of harm, poverty and abuse. And so the way that we do that is by helping frontline professionals be the best they can be. Mm. And so if we're then delivering training at different levels within the organization, all going back time and time again. So for some, we deliver all of their induction training, for instance, and we're saying the same thing. We're role modeling our values. We're highlighting their values. We're bringing parts in from the SMT discussions, et cetera. One of the things that we talk about with the methodology is that the added value is that it's a bottom-up approach to continually influencing the culture because you hear the same thing again and again and again and again. It starts to have that impact. And if they, one of the added benefits within Tay delivery is that it's two-way feedback. So actually we go and have conversations with their managers as well about actually what we've found within the sessions, the feedback that we've got, Sometimes, in fact, very recently, I had to have a very difficult conversation with an organization who think that they were, they booked some sessions with us. One was risk management, one was complex needs and substance misuse, and one was support planning. And they thought that they were doing exceptionally well with regards to supporting their staff through COVID. And actually, we do an emotional resilience pre and post questionnaire. And all the way through the three sessions that they had, their staff were telling us how broken they were. And so part of our added value is I then have a conversation with their director and share that information confidentially. So mm. the, the delegates know we're sharing it, but mm. we don't share any names. Of course, they're anonymously. Yeah. And we also share what the delegates have said would make the difference. So in some ways, and that, that's kind of the point of the methodology is that it brings in because you're right, if you just turn up, deliver training and leave, well, even if you've been the best trainer ever, is that enough? No, <laughs> no, it won't be. Because the first and foremost thing is you want to find out, well, I want to find out certainly how effective each person that attended, how effective did they feel the training was? Did they feel they learned something new? Because training is about teaching, I think. So have you increased their awareness or their knowledge in a particular area or areas? Do they feel that even if they had knowledge of a certain topic, do they feel they've gained value from the training? Or do they feel they've increased their knowledge? 
or their awareness. Yeah. So, you know, I often say, you know, it's like many things in life, it's not a one size fits all. Life would be very simple if life was like that, but life isn't it's like boring. that. It's just how it is. I was going to say it would be very boring if it was like that. Yeah. Yeah. But when people are looking for solutions, you know, often I've found they're looking for a simple solution. And sometimes in life, there are simple solutions, but often they're not. I mean, even when I wrote my first book, my first book took me five years of research because the book's about relationships. And I must say, when I started writing the book, I didn't think it was going to take me five years, but it's a research-based book. Tell the listeners the title of the book. And oh, the book is called How to Avoid Making the Big Relationship Mistakes, and it's available on Amazon, hardback and Kindle. So yeah, so when I started writing the book, I didn't foresee it was going to take me five years, but it's like, you know, you get to a stage where how far down the rabbit hole do I really want to go? Because, you know, you're talking about relationships, it's a vast subject. And at the end, I had written 800 pages or typed 800 pages and I'm a two finger typist. Maybe that's why it took me the best part of five years as well. But I found a very good editor. So we got it down to 400 pages. So, where is it? There it is. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to look that out. Even the title makes me want to read it, to be fair. So, well titled. Well, it was titled like that in the sense of CEO optimization considerations, keywords, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, yeah. And I've just finished a draft for my second book, which is going to be called How to Avoid Abusive Relationships. A Guide to Toxic Personalities. That's another one I'm going to want to read as well. <laughs> them are right up my street. Uh, thank you. So that's taken another best part of five years. But to be fair, I didn't have to start it from scratch in the sense of that I had material from the first book draft. Yeah. At the moment, I think I'm on about 450 pages for book two. But when my editor gets her hands on it... <laughs> I'm sure she'll um, trim it down a bit, as it were. But um, yeah, it's all about raising awareness. And even for the first book and the one I'm going to publish this year, it always states, oh, I always state that this is a, a best practice guide. Because again, you, you can't cover every eventuality. People are, yeah, people are complicated, do you know? Not but it's really interesting because actually your books, the organisation you're involved in, your training, it's all interconnected, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, definitely. Because at the end of the day, it can be difficult to, if someone's going through domestic abuse or sexual abuse, it can be difficult for them to get access to services. That, that can be their first hurdle. But then actually connecting with somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. And Augusta has a level of empathy. I think empathy is so important when you're interacting with someone who's struggling or going through a rough time. So yeah, so for me, it's, I mean, I've been supporting people in one form or another for <laughs> probably 20 plus years, easily. If I take into account my unison work, being a representative, etc. But I've always been inclined to help people, one. And two, I've always felt to myself, well, there's no point having all the knowledge that I've gained over the years. And, I, and it's not helping anyone, or I'm not sharing it. To me, well, what's the point then? <laughs> you know, so yeah. I'm always sharing information, even in the support group I have on Facebook. And I post about maybe two or three articles a day, you know, because even though the group's got 21,000 members, if I post something to that group, that doesn't mean all 21,000 members are going to see it. No, not at all. You know, 
So I might repost articles sometimes, just mm. repost them at different times. Yeah, so I'm very much one for, I'm just raising awareness. I mean, I've, as I said, I've interviewed probably 14 or so, 14 or 15 survivors of domestic abuse. I've also produced a podcast series on narcissistic abuse, okay. um, which is a little bit more complicated than, I mean, domestic abuse can be complicated enough, but then if you're dealing with narcissistic mm. abuse or sociopaths or psychopaths, that's another ball game. But I've done a three-part series on narcissistic abuse, which is a podcast called Exposing a Narcissist in Relationships. Ah, another one right up my street. You'll have to post in our Facebook group about that one because we've got quite a few police officers, social workers, mental health workers. Okay. So it's our Facebook group is very much full of people who deliver training and work within the front line. All right. So that's kind of the cohort of people that are in there. And mm. that would be exactly what they would happily listen to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, my podcasts are audio only. So the thing I love about podcasts, it's basically the same as radio in the sense of you can listen to it while you're doing something else. You can listen to it while you're washing the dishes or yeah. driving. Or... That's exactly how I do it. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Multi talented and all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's just a medium that lends itself to the listener they're not tied to their pc or tied to a monitor no they can do other things it doesn't mean to say because they're doing something else they're not absorbing the information yeah well that goes straight back to what we said about learning styles earlier yeah, yeah. So for some people actually their their strongest sense their biggest learning style is auditory and so you're playing strongly to that learning style yeah Nigel, it's been wonderful talking to you today. Thanks so much for giving up your time. Would you mind just telling our listeners where they can find out more about you and the training that you deliver? Sure. I belong to an organisation called Survivor Provider Services. Uh, we have a website, which is called survivorprovideservices.com. You can also find me in Amazon. I have a book called How to Avoid Making the Big Relationship Mistakes, which is available on Amazon as a hardcover or as a kindle so you can find me there i'm also a podcaster so if you google the name author nigel beckles podcast you will easily find me oh fantastic so lots of different options for our listeners brilliant and have you any final words you'd like to say to listeners before we sign off today well as trainers i think we just have a an obligation to make sure that our training is as effective and as ethical as it can be Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. It makes all the difference.